Fear often grips our lives in lots of different ways, and uh, as Americans, we uh, seem to be afraid of lots of different things. Uh, those things rank from clean water to terrorist attacks to a multitude of other things. But I happen to find the top 10 list of things that Americans are afraid of right now in our life. And I want to share them with you. And I'll start with uh, 10 and we'll go down from there. So here's what I need on both campuses. I need just a little drum roll, please. You know, help me out. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I just thought I would try that, but uh, I don't really need it. The number 10 thing fear is the fear of germs called mysophobia. Anybody in here kind of afraid of germs? Clean freak? Yeah, okay. Uh, there's also the uh, agoraphobia, which is the fear of unsafe environments. That's people that are afraid to go outside because you're afraid of something unsafe. Uh, there's also the fear of shyness or fear of people, which is also called social phobia these days. Uh, there is... T- Trypanphobia, which is the fear of needles. Anybody have that? Yes. Can I get an amen? Yes. Uh, There's also the fear of thunderstorms, which is astrophobia. Or maybe you were bitten, uh, you know, as a child by a dog or maybe chased down the road by one. And you have the fear of dogs, which is sinophobia. Uh, perhaps you have the fear of flying, which is aerophobia. I uh, don't want to get on a plane. We'd rather drive everywhere. Uh, hey, praise the Lord for you, but I'm not doing that. Uh, and then you have acrophobia, which is the fear of heights. And then the top two things, uh, one is ophidiophobia, which is the fear of snakes. And the number one fear for most people around the world is arachnophobia, spiders, okay? How many of you are spider, uh, you know, scared? Yep, okay, it happens. Now, here's the deal. I combed through different lists, and uh, I saw all these different things, and again, ranging from uh, fear of running out of clean water to terrorist attacks to corrupt government officials, all these different things that people were afraid of. Uh, But one thing I never found on the list was a fear of angels, I never saw anybody have a fear of an angel encounter, and, and probably uh, because right now we're more afraid of an alien encounter than an angel encounter. Uh, but what's crazy is, as we read Luke chapter 1, we see three different accounts of angel encounters, supernatural phenomenon that appears to three different people. Uh, This all happens uh, and is recorded by a guy named Luke. Luke was a physician in the day and time of Herod the Great and also uh, in the time of Jesus. And he takes uh, an account and he writes to a guy in Luke chapter 1 named Theophilus. Uh, How would you like that name? Uh, And he goes, hey, Theophilus, I want to give you an account of an eyewitness description. I want you to know the things in detail that happened as they came to be. And uh, many people would say that Luke is one of the greatest historians that there ever was. And he gave solid biblical accounts to not only the things that transpired, but have also been backed up over time with historical and archaeological evidence. And so Luke is a great writer and he begins this account. And in verse 5, he begins writing to Theophilus, and he shares a handful of things. Among those are these accounts of uh, these supernatural beings that appear to three, th- three different people. One uh, is a guy named Zechariah, and it happens in a place that's the temple. Uh, now, just so you can understand what that might would be like, let's just say that you worked 
at a, at a church. Uh, we, we actually um, have this building all the time, and it's not uncommon that one of our staff uh, will have something that they, they need to do, and they'll do it late at night. Could you imagine coming in to this building around 11 p.m.? All the lights are out, and, and, and then, hey, you're like walking down the hall, and it's a little eerie and a little bit spooky, and you're like... Lord, I know that I'm in a safe place. And you're like, why? Because you're like, because it's a church. Like, it's just a building, right? So you're like, Lord, be with me. And like, you're walking down and it's like really creepy. Now, let me ask you a question. You think it'd be creepier if like you were in a funeral home or something like that? Yes. Okay. So here's the deal. Like, there's all these different places, you know, and, and, and God is, is going to show up in a temple. And he's going to show up in a house. He's going to show up in these different places. And he's going to do so with an angel. And so in this first account, it's just with a guy named Zechariah. And so Luke begins to outline the account for us. And we're going to see it in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. I encourage you to do that. I think there's some great things to mark along the way. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put it for you up on the screen so you can see it. Uh, but certainly would encourage you uh, to go and, and, and read it yourself. We're even going to provide a sermon guide tomorrow in the Stone Point News. And if you don't have uh, the Stone Point News, you can sign up for that at uh, stonepointchurch.com forward slash Stone Point News. It'll take you about 10 seconds. It'll come to your inbox tomorrow and have a sermon guide with a lot of questions, some other things to discuss in the passage that you can read. Uh, but in Luke chapter 1, here's what he says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Uh, now, Zechariah's name meant Yahweh has remembered. Now, one of the reasons that, that that's noted is because Zechariah's name, uh, in a sense, means that, hey, God hasn't forgotten you. But as we read through this story, it certainly seems like God has forgotten him. And so what you will notice is that he's also of the division of Abijah. Uh, so here it is, this guy named Zechariah living in a day of oppression by a guy named King Herod. King Herod uh, was known to be an evil man. Matter of fact, historians would say uh, that he had one of his 10 wives killed in an instant just because he could. Um, and so he was a wicked man. He also uh, is the same very, uh, very same man that would, would encourage uh, the Magi to go after in search of this boy who might become a king. His name was Jesus, which we'll read about later uh, in the narrative uh, as we get closer uh, to Christmas. But this guy was a wicked man. He goes, I want to kill every infant, every newborn that would threaten my kingdom. And so you know that he's this kind of guy. The, the culture is corrupt. There's lots of challenges that are going on in this day and age. And, and here it is, Zechariah, who is a, a devout Jew or a Hesed. Everybody say Hesed. You're like, I don't even know what that is. All that means is a loyal Jew. It means he was devout in every way. He loved God completely, and he was a Hasid or a Hasidic Jew. And so he was, he was that, and, and, and we, what we see here is he was in the division of Abijah. Now, the reason that that's even mentioned is because he was of the priestly tribe, and he had priestly duties that he could do. Um, but there were 24 different, in a sense, divisions among the priesthood. And he happened to be of one of those 24 called Abijah. And so what they would do is they would, they would take care of the temple and other challenges that they might have before them. Now, he was also married, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, the reason that Luke writes this is because they were great Jews. They had great Jewish descendants uh, as far as roots were concerned. They were both righteous for the Lord. Uh, in verse 6, they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. 
These people were devout in every way. They were blameless in a wicked and a corrupt generation. Uh, in the midst of a Roman uh, control and government, they still were seemed to be faithful. Listen, even in the midst of a priesthood that was largely corrupt and had been in many different ways, they were pure and devoted and blameless. Now, re- really quickly, I want you to realize that just because they were Hasid and loyal in a lot of ways didn't mean that they were blameless. Matter of fact, you had another group of kind of the priesthood and, and leaders in the nation. They were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They weren't really blameless at all. Matter of fact, Jesus had a lot of words to say to these type of men. But here was Zachariah and Elizabeth. They seemed to be what you would call devout, kind, pure, blameless, honorable people. Matter of fact, it's very similar to what Paul would write to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter uh, 2, verses 14 through 16. This is what Paul encouraged the Philippians to do, how they should live. He says, hey, you should do all things without grumbling and complaining. How many of you have a challenge with grumbling and complaining? Yeah. So he goes, we shouldn't do that. He goes, we, we ought to be blameless and innocent. We should be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You should hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He goes, you ought to be different. You ought to be set apart. Now listen, that's not just an encouragement to the church in Philippi. That's also a, a challenge for the church today. He goes, there is something about us walking with Christ that we should be blameless and pure. We should be set apart. Uh, another great word, we should be consecrated for God. Like we should be different, blameless and pure. That's what Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were. But here's the deal. Even though they were blameless, it did not seem that they were blessed. You might go, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, But then they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, when it says both were advanced in years, that's a really kind way of Luke saying they were really, really old. And so here it is. You've got a really, really old couple who has been faithful to God, who's loved him. They have been blameless in every way, but they have not been blessed with children. Matter of fact, if you go back to the very beginning of creation, God told Adam and Eve, he goes, multiply and fill the earth. Go and rule and and reign and subdue it, like enjoy all that you have. In Psalm 127, a passage that if you've been with us any uh, here recently at Stone Point over the last few weeks, we've talked about that children are a heritage of the Lord. Matter of fact, it says that uh, a warrior is blessed to have a quiver full of children. But here it is that these people who have been blameless in every way, who are of the priesthood and the line uh, of great Jewish descendants and roots, have no children. No future generation, old and advanced in age, they have no hope. And here it is that they um, are in some ways probably what praying now for the nation, praying that, that God would, would see fit to, to bring them out of rule and oppression of Rome, praying that the Messiah would come. Lord, come, help, help, May bring your, your Messiah, bring the, the, the Prince of Peace, the one that you promised about. Like there's all these different prayers. But could you imagine being this Middle Eastern woman who had prayed desperately for years and her husband for a child? And yet here it is, this Eastern woman who had no children, old in age, advanced in years, now wondering like, what is my purpose in life? No heritage, 
And so here it is. You can just imagine that her life had been overshadowed by barrenness. Matter of fact, in that culture, to not have children was not only a, a, an egregious problem, but it was oftentimes something that people would look on it and they would say that, hey, you were a sinner. It's like a, born that's, a man that's born blind. Is it that way because of his sin or his father's sin? Or why is it? And that's can, the same type of thing. So here it is, this barren woman and seemed that even though she was blameless, she lacked the blessing of God. The question is, was that true? Now in verse 8 says, Now while he was serving, meaning Zacharias, the priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now one of the reasons that's so significant is because in this day and age, even in the midst of corruption, they had a large number of priesthood. Uh, estimates were that they had over 20,000 priests that were serving in the different divisions. So these 24 divisions all divided up. There's 20,000 plus priests. And many of them uh, would never actually serve in the temple. They would never burn incense. They would never take care of any of the... um, the furniture in the temple. They would never take care of any of the things of God outside of being outside of the temple and praying with those who went in. And so here it is that this is kind of, in a sense, something that might land on a priest. And for him, it finally does. Verse 9 says, And he was chosen by lot to enter the the temple. And so what they would do is they would put all the names in the hat and they would draw, and and they would draw a division. And then after the division, they would draw a person out of the division. And out of the division from there and the person, they would also draw draw a duty. And so all of that was, in a sense, cast by lot. So the best way I can explain it is if you're an East Texas guy from, you know, and you're a redneck and you're like, hey, I want to go to Colorado and I want to shoot a big old elk, they put you in a drawing and you just begin to pray, like, Lord, like, would you? favor fall on me, right? Uh, that they'll draw your name out of a hat. That's what they did. And you could look at it and you say, well, it, maybe it's by, by happenstance or maybe it's by chance. Maybe it's just something that, you know, is a coincidence per se, uh, that he happens to have his name and his division drawn and his duty drawn. But either way, it lands on this guy named Zachariah and he has what you would call a once in a lifetime moment. Probably the only time that he'll ever walk into the temple and burn incense before the Lord, he has now been assigned this task. In verse 10, it says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And so here it is. His name is drawn. He goes to burn incense at the altar of incense. And all of a sudden, voila, a supernatural figure appears. Not like this chubby little cherubim that you see sitting on your mantle, okay? Uh, I'm not talking about the little, little guy that, you know, obviously makes people fall in love at Valentine's. I'm talking about the angel that Isaiah describes. Uh, a big cherubim uh, with six wings and eyes all about him. And you look at him and you go, I don't even know what you are probably radiating a bright light. And, and here's the question is, what, what would you do in this moment? I mean, here it is, like you're in the church building, you're, you're offering prayers to the Lord, you're having this time between you and the Lord, and then all of a sudden, an angel appears. I can tell you exactly what I would do. I'd do what you do. I'd probably poop on myself. <clears throat> And the question that you have to ask yourself is in this moment where like you're super afraid, you have to ask yourself this question. Did this happen by chance? Like, was this just a coincidence or was it a divine appointment? 
I love what uh, this says right here. It says, things don't just happen to those who love God. They're planned by his own dear hand. Then molded and shaped and timed by his clock, things don't just happen, they're planned. Now, I don't know why it is that you're here today and you might think, well, I'm here by coincidence or I'm here by chance or I'm here because somebody drugged me here after Thanksgiving. I don't know really why I'm here. Can I just tell you, it's not by chance. That God knew in this day and moment of your life, this point in time in history, that you would be sitting in this particular room, in this particular instance, needing to be reminded of these words, do not be afraid. Matter of fact, if you look, and Zechariah was troubled, and he, what, he, he did what we would all do. He, he, in a sense, fell with fear. Fear fell upon him. And he has the same response that every single other person in the history of mankind has had. He had the same response that Moses had, and he didn't see an angelic being. He saw a burning bush, and, and he, he trembled in fear. He had the same response as a guy named Daniel when he saw uh, the angel appear to him. He had the same response as Gideon, uh, of John. Uh, he had the same response as Joseph will have and Mary will have later in the narrative. Every time you see an angelic being, fear falls upon you. And, and when fear falls upon a person you got to begin asking yourself, like, why is that? Like, why is all of this fear upon you? And what do I do about it? And then at this point, the angel who is speaking to him, he ushers these words, and I want you to read it with me on both campuses. He says, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Do what? Like, okay. So, like, so, so you're, you're going to restore us? You're going to restore our kingdom? No, 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 no. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear you a son. Hold on, what? Now think about this for just a second. He is advanced in years. He's really, really old. Like, guys, he hasn't prayed a prayer for his son in a long time. Why? Because he knows there is no way on earth that his really, really old wife, or sorry, advanced in years wife, is going to have a child. So can you imagine that this is a prayer that has kind of been taken off the prayer list? I mean, don't get me wrong, he's still praying for family members and aunts and uncles, and, and he's, praying, he's praying for a culture uh, that, that's corrupt to become, you know, known to God and to have faith in God. And I'm sure he's praying for his faith in a wicked day. He's praying for his wife and her health. But listen, one of the prayers that is not being prayed at this point in time in their life is that they would have a son. And here it is. He goes, I have heard your prayers. We have heard your prayers. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you're going to call him John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to the hearts of their fathers and the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so the angel goes, hey, listen, don't be afraid. And here's why, because we... I've heard your prayers. Your prayers, the incense before God has risen and he has answered your prayer. He is giving you a son named John. And John is to be consecrated and set apart. And then he begins to outline to him, in almost in verbatim, Numbers chapter 6. 
the Nazarite vow, what it would look like for a Nazarite to be set apart. Now, if you think about John the Baptist, you ever hear about this guy, which is who they're talking about here to Zechariah and Elizabeth, you'll know that he was like a guy who was out in the wilderness with really long hair and kind of, you know, nasty and dirty and, and, and ate locusts out in the, in the fields and honey. And you're like, it's kind of this wild man. Well, here, here's who he should remind you of. He should remind you of the Old Testament Nazarite named Samson, a guy who was not encouraged to cut his hair, a guy who was not encouraged to take strong drink, and a, a man who was not encouraged to get in bed with foreign women. Now, here's what we know, is that in order to be set apart and for God to use you, those are the things that a Nazarite must do. Now, there's very few people that were, 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 were great Nazarites and that took the vow, and there was even more few people who were filled with the promised Holy Spirit from their birth. And so John was a man that was going to be used greatly by God. And here it is that this has fallen upon a man and his family named Zachariah and Elizabeth who were been faithful in the midst of a faithless generation, who have been an example to others, even though there was no real example to follow outside of a faith in God. Now, you may wonder, well, okay, why was, why was he so afraid? Like, why has fear struck him and pierced his heart? And here's why you need to know this. It's because God has not spoken to the people of Israel for 400 plus years. Like he has gone totally silent. Like he has not spoken in any way. He hasn't spoken through words penned by the prophets. He hasn't raised up a guy like Amos or, or like uh, Obadiah or like Micah or like Malachi in 400 years. Matter of fact, the last one to raise up was a guy named Malachi. And Malachi, in chapter 4, he wrote these words in verse 5 and 6. Now look and see if they seem familiar. He says, Behold, I will send you an Elijah, the prophet before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. So the last words that God spoke were, I will send an Elijah who will what? Bring back children and fathers, hearts of children to their fathers. The exact same words that in verse 17 he says. Look at verse 17. The angel says, And he will go before him the spirit and the power of Elijah, fulfilled, to turn the hearts of the fathers of their children, to the disobedient of the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, fulfilled. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of a, of a prophet 400 years earlier, and God had gone silent. And then all of a sudden he shows up in the temple and he goes, don't be afraid because I have a plan. And even though you haven't heard my voice or you haven't seen my ways and you hadn't seen my power in many, many years, you need to know that the time has come and I am making myself ready to change the world. And if you can imagine, that would motivate you, right? Like it would just like encourage you if you were Zechariah. Like you would be pumped. You would be excited. And then Zechariah says to the angel in verse 18, Wow, I can't wait! He goes, how should I know this? I mean, for I'm an old man and, and my wife, and look at the wisdom of this husband. My wife is advanced in years. Like many of you guys, you need wisdom and tact. Because if it was you saying this, you'd have been like, my wife's like 125 years old. There ain't nothing happening. 
But here's the crazy thing is, and this is, I think, what I want you to understand. He says, how, how, how should I know? Like, how, how do I know? And, and for me, I'm like, Zechariah, like, when's the last time anyone around you's had an angel encounter? I mean, it doesn't even make our top 10 or 250 list. Why? Because angel encounters don't happen all that often. And he's going, hey, how do I get a sign? I'm like, do what? Which is proof to us. Listen to us. Signs, signs are not what you should be praying for. And that's oftentimes like, Lord, did you just give me one more sign? Like, no, like, what? What? When you do that, you should have somebody just slap you upside the head. Because even an angel wasn't convincing to a guy who was blameless and now is going to be blessed by God. And here's what I want you to understand, is that that's where fear comes in. See, fear is not the absence of faith. It's just faith in the wrong thing. Fear is not the absence of faith. It's faith in the wrong thing. So here, here it was. I mean, Zechariah, who had offered prayers to God years and years earlier, they're finally answered. The incense of his prayers goes up with the smoke, and God goes, listen, I'm not into the smoke as I am as the prayers of the saints. And so he answers the prayers. He comes to Zechariah, and he goes, hey, it's coming to fruition. And, and here it is, Zechariah's going, okay, but now, now what do I do? And he's like, do What? You put your faith in me. You put your, your faith in the one who sent a, an angel to you to speak a clear word to you. The very things you prayed for, I've answered. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to answer the prayers of the faithful. But here's the deal. He didn't listen. And so because he didn't listen and, and he didn't hear and he didn't believe in faith, and instead he was given over to fear the angel goes, hey, listen, you need to understand my resume. You need to understand who it is that, that comes. I, I am the messenger of the Most High God. I have rubbed shoulders with God Almighty. I am His servant. So he begins to outline in verse 19 his resume. This is what he says. He goes, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you. And I would imagine this was pretty firm. Like, this is a pretty good talking to, if you understand. And he goes, and I'm bringing you this good news. And he says, and behold, because you didn't listen, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day of these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which was fulfilled in their time. Zechariah's lack of faith brought about a consequence. Now, here's the deal. When you and I don't trust and obey in the words of God, we have a consequence. Matter of fact, Jesus says it more simply like this in John chapter 15, verse 5. He goes, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. At the end of the day, he goes, where I have spoken clearly, if you don't abide in those words, he goes, you will be a fruitless generation. And, and you'll wonder about signs and wonders and miraculous things. And he goes, and you will be powerless because all the signs that you could ever ask for have absolutely no backing. And so here's a consequence because of a lack of obedience. Now, if you can imagine... Zacharias had this angel encounter. He's got the promised son, John, that they'll call John the Baptist, coming. Uh, he has been in the temple for quite some time, probably a little bit 
longer than the normal uh, person you know, that has got drafted to go and burn incense at the altar of incense. I mean, he's been in there a while, and people are beginning to go, hey, what is taking so long? Like, I mean, is he, like he's, I mean, I guess it is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. I mean, you only get to do this once. You might as well make it count. So he must be hanging out in there for quite a while. And verse 21 says, The people were out there waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And then verse 22, And he came out, and he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had had a vision in the temple. Now, I don't know what gave it away. I don't know if it was the wet spot. I don't know if it was his face and fear. I don't know what it was. But either way, here's what they knew. He had been in the presence of, of an angelic being. They knew something divine took place, and they were wondering what it was. And here's the deal. He comes out, and he begins to, to tell them. No, look, he says, and all he does is keeps making signs to them, and he remained mute. Now, let me ask you a question. Can like, you just envision this? with me. Like, this is kind of funny to me. Like, he has been in there burning. He's had an angelic being show up, and he comes out, and he can say absolutely nothing. He has been paralyzed and stricken with fear because of what he has just seen, and all he can do is make signs. And people were going, what? I mean, think about it, guys. Think about communicating with your wife and her not being able to speak. That would be a challenge, right? Yes? Ladies to your husbands. No words, yes. So here's the deal. This is crazy. And, and here's the You go, well, okay, he's, he's doing that. But he continues to make signs until, what? He decides the service has ended, and then he goes home. Now, this is where it gets funny to me. He goes home to a really, really old wife who's advanced in years. Can't hear, may not can see all that well, and all he's got is to make signs. And he is trying to convince her that she's going to be pregnant in a few days. Now that's funny. <laughs> and the text says, And after a few days, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. And you might wonder, well, why? Because once a lady not blessed, she was barren. She didn't want to you know, go out in the public. Maybe she was going to be disgraced in that way. No, I think... I think, and so, several commentaries would disagree, and some would agree, that she was seeking after the Lord and thanking Him for His provision, and she abided with her Heavenly Father for five consistent months, thanking Him for something that seemed so far-fetched that has now come to fruition. And she knows that if her son is the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for the Lord, that what? The Messiah is right around the corner as well. And so she has a day and age and where she is hopeful. And in verse 25, it says, The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me and he took away my reproach. No, the reproach of my people. What she's saying is, is the Messiah is coming. Like even in all of her joy and her excitement to bear her own son, she knows her son is the one preparing the way that people no longer have to be afraid. And you might ask yourself, well, what does that even mean? And why don't you have to be afraid? Listen, there are three things that are in this text right here that when you see these, like these just bring joy to our heart. And the very first thing is that you and I need to know, like we don't have to be afraid 
Because a righteous remnant will always remain. Think about this. The world was super corrupt in the days of Noah, and yet God says, I'm going to have you build a boat, and I'm going to rescue just a handful of people. And Noah, you're going to lead it. There was a remnant. Uh, There was a day and age where God would call out one man named Abraham, and he goes, Abraham, if you'll be faithful to me, I'm going to lead you to become my people. There was a day and age that in the midst of all that plan, some some brothers got together and they thought in their corruption and their evil, they would sell their brother into slavery because he annoyed them. And yet God says, what you meant for evil, God will use for good. And he brings about a faithful remnant named Joseph. In Joseph's day, um, he would lead the charge, the nation of Israel, and the nation would begin to flourish. And then God would raise up a remnant, a guy named Moses, who would go and he would speak on behalf of God to the people. And he would declare the words, you need to let my people go. And my God said, I am who I am, so you better believe him. And God used a remnant. Even in the midst of their corruption and all of their challenges, God would take a woman who wasn't even a Jew and she would raise uh, he would raise her up, named Rahab, and he, she would house people so the people of Israel weren't destroyed. In the midst of all of their challenges, God would raise up prophets, a guy like Daniel, who would be a faithful remnant. Though his people were exiled, he would not bend to the ways of the world. Matter of fact, he had three buddies who were remnants along with him. His, their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was a faithful remnant. Even though the, the, the entire nation would largely be corrupt, God would raise up a remnant, a guy named Nehemiah, a guy named Ezra. And they would go back and they would do God's work and very few people would trickle back with them, but there was always a remnant. Even in the midst of that, God would raise up all of these different prophets who would speak on behalf of God. Guys like Malachi, guys like Habakkuk, guys who were faithful, Amos and Joel, all these different ones. And you go, well, we don't have any prophets anymore. Yes, we do. Well, we don't have any priests anymore. Yes, we do. Where are they? You are the remnant. You are to shine like stars in the universe. People should know that you love Jesus by the way you love one another. Like in a frantic, fear-filled world, people should know that there's peace and joy and hope because of you and the righteousness that you have in your faith in God. People ought to know that there's something different about you. Matter of fact, here's what you and I need to know is that the Lord is looking right now in this very moment for someone to strongly support. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the entire earth looking for someone, just one person, who he could fully strengthen and support. Why not you? And here's why not you. You ready? Because oftentimes the invitation to God's work feels more like an interruption to you. The invitation to be a part of God's grand plan in reaching the nations feels like an interruption. And that's something you have to wrestle with. But a remnant will always be invited into the narrative and they will say yes. There will always be a faithful few. The question is, is will you be a part of it? And here's the deal. If we have Jesus Christ, we are a priesthood of believers. We have a noble task, a work to do, and we should do that work well. And you should not fear, for the Lord is with us wherever we go. Here's the deal too. Number two is that God is still in the miracle business. 
Like, can you imagine being Zachariah, praying years and years and years earlier? And then the angel goes, hey, I've heard your prayer. And he's like, oh, yeah, awesome, great. I mean, you, what is it? Well, I'm going to bring you a son. I'm like, do what? I mean, I haven't prayed that prayer in years. Can I just tell you that gives me hope in this narrative that regardless of how long you've been praying for your son or daughter who is far from God, keep on because God is still in the miracle business. For that husband who who will not come with you and will not join you in your faith, for that wife who seems obstinate to God's ways, keep praying because the Lord is still in the miracle business. Now listen, if you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Like when's an angel going to come? I think maybe you're missing it because the miracle business is different than what you need to understand the miracle business was then. Yes, there are still some John 4 encounters. Uh, John, uh, John records Jesus going uh, and meeting a Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, he speaks to her in which she has been married five times and now living with the sixth man. And he goes, hey, listen, your sins can be forgiven. And he forgives her and she goes away and she tells about all that Jesus has done. God is still in the business of, of healing people who are adulterous. But in John chapter 5, there's a different encounter in which I think one is often the one we're looking for in miraculous signs and wonders. And that is that Jesus goes to a guy who's been a paralytic for 38 years. And he goes, hey, do you want to be healed? And the guy goes, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah, I guess. Okay, well, then take up your mat and go and walk and send no more. See, the thing is, is that when we think miracles in this day and age, what we think is are signs and wonders. And we've convinced ourselves that if we can find a place that can, in a sense, give us a divine word and heal us from our physical infirmities, then maybe we found the place. And listen, what you need to know is what Jesus says next to the man in John 5. He's not near as concerned about him walking physically as he is about him walking spiritually. He says, now go and sin no more. For if you continue to do the spiritual things, you will face judgment that you've never faced before. The idea of this, he goes, I am much more interested in your sin problem and your spiritual well-being than I am your physical infirmities. Which begs the question, can God still heal people physically? Yes, I've seen it, and I've testified with my own eyes. But what I want you to understand is that it's a rarity. I can think of two or three in my entire 38, almost 39 years of living. But what I see more of are the miracles I'm about to share with you. The miracles that I've seen here countless times and times again. That was people that were once blind spiritually that now see. Lame people that walked, stumbled around in their life, making rebellious and wicked decisions that God finally stands up and he goes, I want you to walk in righteousness and faith. And now they walk in the name of Christ. People who once mute but now can speak, once uh, were deaf and now can hear the things that the God of creation says. People that were once adulterers and now are walking in recovery with Christ. People who were once drug addicts are now set free from their addictions. Uh, People who once sold to many people in this area, now uh, all they do is take the gospel to them, the good news. What you have is people who have been pill poppers and now they've been set free. Set free from what? Anxiousness and anxiety, fear. Fear of man that gripped their heart. But now they go, I just want to fear the Lord and I want to do what's right in his eyes. 
There are all types. I mean, hundreds of accounts that I could give you of people who are walking in Christ from once promiscuous living to, to now walking in holiness. Materialists who are building their own kingdoms and now they're building kingdoms that last for the kingdom of God. Victims of greed and massive debt now walking no longer in slavery to their, their, their adulterous ways. Fallen leaders, fake Christians who have now been restored. Suicide attempt survivors. Every example that I've given you here, people here, in the last eight and a half years, have come to know and follow Jesus. And, and listen, what I want you to realize is you may be wanting a sign, you may be wanting a wonder, you may, listen, you're never going to get that from our stage. If that's the sign of the wonder you're talking about, it's an angel. And, and here's why, because I need you to give you this third one, which is the greatest hope for me is that when you know and understand God, you don't need a sign because you have his word. Do you know that the angel of God showed up to break silence with God on behalf of the people? 400 years of silence between God and his people, and an angel shows up to give them hope. Probably because they couldn't handle God after 400 years. And so here it is. He goes light on him and he goes, but I'm going to fulfill my ways and my purpose. And so he shows up. But listen, can I just explain something? You don't need an angel, a bright light. You don't need some crazy, miraculous dream in order to see that God has spoken. Why? Because he said that he has spoken through his word. All revealed to the prophets long ago, now coming to fruition before our very eyes. All we have to do is read it, apply it, and discern it. It's all right here. And the goal is for us as believers to grow up in maturity. Why? Because Scripture, all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3 says, is God-breathed. And it's useful for what? For teaching. It's profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peter says that everything that we have that pertains to life and godliness is found right here in the Word. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12 says that the, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, that it divides to the joint and the marrow, that it can discern intentions and attitudes like it is alive. And so here's what I think you and I need to realize is that we ought to be surprised if you're not continually surprised by God. Like if you're not continuing to see God show up in miraculous ways in your life and in your faith, then maybe you're worshiping the wrong God. But if you're waiting for an angel encounter to not be afraid, then you're waiting on the wrong thing. Do you know why you shouldn't be afraid? It's because God showed up out of silence and he broke forth in a mystery proclaimed to people on earth and he says, my hope is here. Advent the first, the Christ, the Messiah is coming. He's going to seek and to save that which is lost. He's going to bring mankind out of their darkness, out of their slavery, out of their addictions, and he's going to give them a new life in Christ. Now go and walk in the fullness of God. And so church, as we leave today, may our hearts be encouraged that we don't have to be afraid. For the Lord our God is with us wherever we go.
And so may we go in fullness and in grace and truth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you desire to produce in us righteousness, a life that leads to life and hope and peace and joy. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in that and that we would tell it and that we would celebrate it. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be looking for signs and wonders in physical things or in angels or in angelic uh, beings or even in dreams or in visions. Lord, we know that you can still do those things. Lord, we know that you can do whatever you want. We just believe that you're not going to do those all the time. That most of the time you're more concerned about us spiritually, about being the people you've called us to be. And so, Lord, I pray that that's what we would desire to look for. And I pray that we would be a part of a church that we see dead men come to life. So help us to be a part of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.